Luke chapter number 20 is where we will begin. And you catch us up a little bit on where we've been. The last several months, Jesus has been in this journey towards Jerusalem. Uh, we kind of saw that in Luke, I think Luke chapter 12, we saw Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And really for the past eight chapters, he's been walking with his disciples on this journey towards what will eventually culminate in the Passion Week. And just this past Sunday, we saw Jesus ride into Jerusalem, not on a war horse or a royal steed of some kind, but on a donkey. And we learned about the humility of our king, that this isn't a king that's here to show off. This is a king that came to give his life as a ransom for our sins. We saw him go into the temple, and he saw some guys in there, if you guys remember last week, uh, profiting and taking advantage of those that are less fortunate within God's house. We see him flipping over tables. We see him uh, executing justice. And what we find in Luke chapter 20 is the response of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, to what Jesus has just shown them, which is ultimately his authority. Uh, Luke chapter 20, we love our Bibles here, so let's get them open. Luke chapter 20, this whole text, this whole interaction is going to become about Jesus and the religious leaders. And this text before us is one of conflict. Really, the whole series, the whole uh, three uh, kind of sections of this Bible we're going to study this morning is about conflict. It's a conflict about the authority of Jesus between the earthly authority of the religious leaders and the spiritual authority that Jesus brings. So let's grab our Bibles, John, or sorry, Luke chapter 20, verse number 1. All right, Luke chapter 20, verse 1. The Bible says that it came to pass that on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, which is the good news, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders and spake unto him, saying, Tell us by what authority doest thou all of these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered, said unto them, I will also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? They reasoned within themselves, saying, if we shall say from heaven, he'll say, well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of men, all the people will stone us, for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And they answered that they could not tell from whence it came. Jesus said unto them, verse number 8, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Then began he to speak to the people a parable. We'll get into the parable and the story in just a few minutes. But what we see here is the religious leaders begin to push back again against the authority of Jesus. They're starting to ask him, by whose authority are you flipping over these tables? By whose authority are you executing this judgment? And one of the things that happens really throughout we've seen in the study of Luke's gospel is that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're not recognizing the identity of Jesus. They're not recognizing the authority of Jesus. And it's pretty obvious to us, we sit here a couple thousand years later with our Bibles open, it's pretty clear that Jesus has authority, right? It's pretty clear to us that he spoke to creation and the wind stopped. That he spoke to the demonic and the demons fleed. That he spoke to a dead man said, get up, and he came back to life. Like, it's pretty obvious to us that Jesus has some level of authority. Like, there's nothing that Jesus can't do. He's, he can say your sins are forgiven, and they're forgiven. He has all authority. But the religious leaders of this day don't recognize him as God's son. They don't recognize him as a deity. They don't recognize that he's the king with all authority that's been given to him. There's going to be a conflict today. There's going to be some headbutting today. And they're going to ask him a series of questions to try and discredit Jesus, to try and catch Jesus, to try and trick Jesus and embarrass Jesus, that the crowds that are listening to Jesus would turn away. 
that they'd see Jesus caught in this situation and they'd lose interest in him. And this is this morning, this isn't just a look back on what happened 2,000 years ago. I think it's a moment for us as well. Because we can have a moment where we acknowledge this morning that the same sin nature that exists in these Pharisees exists in my heart. The same sin nature that exists in these who would push back against the, the authority of Jesus. That same sin nature exists in me this morning. I don't always want Jesus to be king. I don't always want to do what the Lord would have me to do. So we're going to have some questions this morning. Like, who's the king of our life? Can we ask us that clearly? Who's the king? For each and every one of us, somebody calls the shots in the situations that we're in and the decisions that we have to make. Somebody gets the final word. Who wins when God's ways and my desires are in conflict? Who wins when God's plans and my wishes, my plans are in conflict? Do we yield to him? Do we surrender to him this morning? Saying, Jesus, you're my king in every area. There's not a part of my life that I'm, that I'm sectioning off away from you. This isn't just a Sunday morning thing for me. Jesus, you're the king of my life. Who's sitting on the throne of my heart this morning? That's the question we have. This plays out in a lot of different ways. We can kind of feel the, the push, the conflict over authority. I have three kids, eight and under, okay? That's primarily the place that a play for authority plays out in my home, okay? Um, Ever since the kids came out of the womb, I have been deciding I'm going to be a present dad. I'm going to delight over them and I pray over them. I've been taking care of them, changing their diapers, kissing skin knees, trying to be the best dad that I can do, that I can be. And you would think, based on my incredible fathering, right, that when I asked them to do things, that they would do it, right? You would assume based on all of my amazing fatherhood, that they would do what I asked them to. But it's amazing what happens, right? We ask them, hey, your clothes are dirty. We have a little basket that we have purchased and placed within your room for those dirty clothes. We don't even make you wash them. Some of you guys make your kids wash. We don't even make them wash. You put them in the basket, they will magically become clean. But somehow they don't make it to the basket, right? We, we have this machine in the kitchen, that if you put your dishes in the machine, they magically get cleaned. Sometimes they don't always make them to the magic machine. We can pray about this for a second, kids, if you're in the room. Here's one, right? Maybe if you could, when you go to bed, you could stay in the bed, right? Amen from all the parents of the room. Like, you could stay there, right? That would be a miracle from the Lord, right? But it's amazing. Ever since kids come out of the womb, there's a challenge for authority, isn't there? There's a challenge. Even if when I'm making decisions, it's for their flourishing. Like if you sleep, you will feel better. If you rest, you will grow. Right? This is something that's ultimately for you. I, I want your body to recover and rest. And they look at me and say, who do you think you are? Right? Telling us to do these things. Uh, our youngest, Lewis. He's, he's spicy. That's a nice way of putting what Lewis is, okay? A uh, little sanctification still needs to happen in little Lewis's body. But, um, you know, we, you sit him in the chair. You get the strawberries all cut up into little bite-sized pieces because you hover over your children. And they're, they're the expensive, nicer strawberries because we're not trying to, we're trying to be good, right? And you cut them all up. You put them there. And somehow you come back five minutes later, they're on the ground. I'm like, well, that was probably an accident of some kind, I'm sure, right? That couldn't have been intentional. Did I do the whole situation again, cut him up, put him on the plate, and I sit there and I watch him. And I see his brain moving, right? 
picks up the bowl. I said, boy, don't you, don't you put those on the ground. And he looks me straight in the eye, pulls it out, drops it, right? And now we have two kids, in case you're wondering. No, but <laughs> what, what are we really thinking in that moment? We're thinking, I'm the king of my life, right? I'm, the, I'm kidding, of course. He's still here somewhere, I think. But I will do what I want, when I want, how I want. That's how we feel. Right? I'll eat what I want, I'll go where I want, I'll act how I want. I want to be the king of our life. Now, it's easy to recognize that in kids, and it's kind of funny for us to laugh at it. But Romans chapter 8 says that same principle that's in all of us, okay, okay, that same principle that's in, uh, that's in the children, that's in all of us, right? That there's some kind of opposition even within me that I don't desire Jesus to be the king. I don't desire Jesus to be the sovereign. I don't desire Jesus to be in control. I don't always recognize his authority as good and loving. I don't always see what he's doing for me as a blessing to my life. I, I actually sometimes would war against it. Sometimes we're skeptical of the God who made us, the God who created us and sustained us, the God who fills our lives with good gifts. My natural posture isn't always, God, you, you're good and you know what you're talking about. Sometimes it's, God, you don't know what you're talking about. I want to run my life. I want to call the shots. Sometimes we're even bold enough to say, I'm better at running my life than you are. I feel like I'm wiser. I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to submit to you. I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to orient my life around you because I know what's best in my life. So we kind of look in the face of God with our cup of strawberries and we dump them out ourselves. I wonder if we've ever heard Jesus' teaching and thought, you know what, that kind of is different than what I would like to do, the way I would like to live. I don't know if you've ever asked the question that, you know, my two-year-old would have asked on that day, who are you, God, to tell me what to do? Maybe you heard Jesus' teachings on sexuality or Jesus' teaching on how we live. Right over here, little man. Turned the wrong corner. Have a thought, hey, you know what? How is Jesus, what right does he have to speak to me in this way, right? That's offensive to me. How exclusive is it for the claims of Jesus to be, there's only one way to have a relationship with God, and it's through him. That's how disrespectful is that to other religious systems? How is it right for Jesus to demand that my faith be placed in one place? How, Jesus, what, what you're saying about immorality that's not what i like that's not what our world teaches or cultivates that's not what our world is telling me to enjoy that's not what we're, we're getting pushed to champion right i wonder if we've ever thought to ourselves jesus who you are you to tell me what i have to do in whatever area this is in my life i wonder if you've ever been in a relationship or been wounded by someone you know the teaching of jesus on forgiveness you know the teachings of jesus on bitterness but they broke their promise to you or they abandoned you, or they left you, or hurt you, or abused you, and you come to Jesus' teaching, and he says, I want you to forgive as you've been forgiven, and you say, I don't want to do that. I know that's what I should do, I know that's what you're asking me to do, but I don't want to let go of this bitterness, this anger. I want revenge, right? I want, I want punishment, I want wrath. Who are you to tell me what to do, Jesus? I wonder if you've had these moments where maybe you've been invited into the kingdom of God, you've been kind of walking through this whole thing, and Jesus says, hey, if you want to follow me, you've got to literally lay your life down. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. Not just pamper yourself, not just gratify yourself, not just pursue comfort, but that Jesus calls us to die to ourselves for his glory. 
I'm honest, like this past week we had one of our communion service. We do it once a quarter here at church. And I love that service. I love taking moments intentionally to look at the cross and reflect and remember the sacrifice of Jesus. It is moving for me to think about the fact that I deserve hell and judgment and damnation, but God gave me grace and mercy and forgiveness through the death of Jesus. I love looking at the cross, and I love that Jesus is my Savior, and you guys are with me, but I don't always love in the same way that Jesus is my King. I love Jesus as my Savior, but there are some areas of my life that sometimes I try and justify disobedience to Jesus. There's areas in my life where I try to make allowances for myself. And, you know, Jesus, your ways are really costly, and I don't really want to love that person this week. I don't really want to forgive that person. I don't want to give that particular thing up. I don't want to trust you in this area of my life. I want to reach back for control because I love Jesus. Thank you for being my Savior. Thank you for being my forgiver. But I want to be the leader of my life. I want to be the boss. I want to be the king. Maybe I'm the only one that's ever acknowledged Jesus Christ as our Savior, but occasionally rejected him as their Lord. We've sung songs about it. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our ruler. The Old Testament has all these kings, and Jesus is the greater king. We know that. We understand that. But sometimes on an average Tuesday, I'm kicking Jesus off the throne of my life because I want control. And I want to live the way that I want to live. Maybe I'm the only sinner in the house this morning that's done that, but I don't think I am. When we come to a text like we're in this morning, it's really easy to pick on these religious leaders. It's really easy to pick on these Pharisees, these, these, these tendencies that are in their heart. But if I'm honest, those tendencies are in mine. So that heart that's skeptical of Jesus' authority, that heart that's skeptical of his lordship, that doesn't want to yield, that doesn't want to submit. And so what I want to do is kind of walk us through this scripture, and I'll ask us three questions here based on the questions that the Pharisees asked Jesus and uh, then we'll baptize the conclusion of our service this morning and celebrate with those who have surrendered to Jesus as their king, okay? First question, are you questioning Jesus' authority in your life? Are you questioning Jesus' authority? Let's go back to verse number, se- uh, verse number seven of chapter 20. The response when Jesus says, you know, is the baptism of John for me? They say, I, I can't tell you these things. And Jesus responds, neither can I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the religious leaders come to Jesus, and they ask him, say, hey, you know what? You're causing a big mess. You're causing a lot of chaos. You're causing a lot of drama here in Jerusalem. This is kind of a big week for us. This is Passover week. You're flipping over people's tables. We just need to know whose authority can you do this by. They're trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to catch him in some kind of an argument where he's going to either get in trouble with them or the Romans. They're going to get in trouble with the religious authorities or the governmental authorities. So Jesus is always open for honest questions, but when someone comes to Jesus with haughty, prideful questions that are actually accusations, Jesus handles it really winsomely. We're going to see that in our text this morning. They come to him and say, hey, you know what? Verse 1, by whose authority do you do these things? Or who is he, verse 2, that gave you that authority? So Jesus is in the temple. There's a whole bunch of broken people listening to him. Verse 1 says he's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the good news, Right? He took the mic in the temple, and he starts preaching the good news of salvation and forgiveness, the good news that broken people can become whole, the good news that sinful people can become forgiven, the good news that regardless of your background, your race, your ethnicity, your economic status, you're you're invited to experience life, an abundant life in Jesus. It's good news, right? That's what Jesus is preaching. He's preaching the gospel. And he says, as I'm preaching the good news, the religious leaders raise their hands and say, hey, what are your credentials? 
Can you provide us with your, the date of your ordination, Jesus? Can you provide us with your, uh, your religious credentials, your, your education? Who, by who told you you could do these? How can you just flip over tables in here? Oh, why are you accusing us of robbing people, right? The question is more than just Jesus who trained you. The question is more than Jesus, where did you come from? The aim of their question is to get Jesus in trouble, to bust him, to catch him in a, a, a sticky situation. Because they know that if Jesus says, hey, you know what, well, I'm God's son, and I'm allowed to say these things, well, then they're going to you know, call him blasphemous, right? They're ultimately going to take him and, and try to put him to death. If he says, this is my father's house, I'm, I'm the divine Messiah, I'm the promised one, They'll, all the Old Testament points to me, they're going to charge him with blasphemy because they don't think that's true. And then if he says, oh, you know what, I'm just a random dude from Nazareth, I'm no big deal, it's not important really who I am, I don't really have any credentials, they're just going to think he's some ordinary dude who's stirring up trouble, making people too emotional, and everyone's going to leave. They're trying to catch him. What is Jesus going to say? Is he going to say he's God and get killed? Is he going to say he's an average Joe and get ignored? Jesus says, I'll go for door three, right? Verse number three, Jesus answered, said unto them, I'll ask you one thing. I love that. Answers a question with a question. And answer me. The baptism of John, let's talk about John the Baptist, okay? The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? They reasoned within themselves, saying, we shall say from heaven. He'll say, well, why then believed ye him not? And if we say of men, all the people will stone us, for they'd be persuaded that John was a prophet. Okay, Jesus is so smart. He's so wise. Sometimes you just need to read your Bible story of Jesus. But Jesus is much smarter than I am, okay? Um, nobody can flex on Jesus. Nobody can win an intellectual argument with Jesus. He responds to their question with this question because he knows the game they're playing. They're not really asking, hey, Jesus, where do you come from? What authority do you have? They're trying to catch him. He says, I'm going to answer your question with this question. If you can recognize the spiritual authority of John the Baptist, what was the authority of John? Was he a true prophet of God or was he a false prophet of God? And then he puts it on them. Well, John the Baptist, what do you guys say? Now, if you guys don't know your Bibles are relatively new to Scripture, John the Baptist is a really big deal, okay? Uh, John the Baptist, he's prophesied to come in the Old Testament as the forerunner who's going to prepare the way for Jesus to promote the coming of the Messiah, uh, he, he's filled with the spirit in the womb. He, as he grows older, you guys probably recognize him as the guy with the camel hair, eating bugs, right? Kind of the wild man out in the wilderness preaching. He didn't start his ministry in Jerusalem with all the popular people. He starts his ministry in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of nobodies. And what happens is actually the, the somebodies in Jerusalem start leaving Jerusalem to go hear John the Baptist preach. And he's baptizing them. They're, they're, they're coming to faith. They're believing. They're repenting. John the Baptist was, was huge. And Jesus was approaching, if you remember when Jesus approached, what did John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. He said, everybody, this wasn't about me, John says. I was just the forerunner. I'm not even worthy to tie this dude's sandals, he says, right? This is the one we've been waiting for. And then we see him baptize Jesus. We see the Father speak over Jesus. This is my beloved son. This is a big deal. So what they're trying to do, they say, Jesus... He's saying, John, is John right? Is this whole temple filled with people who love John? Many of them in that room had probably been baptized by John. They believed that John the Baptist was a prophet who had called these same religious leaders out. The Pharisees didn't like John, but they knew that everybody in that room liked John. 
John was very popular with the Jews. They rejected John as a messenger. They rejected his message about the work of Jesus. But they knew that if they went after John, the people would come after them. They kind of cowered under that fear. If we go after John, they're going to stone us, he says. And so Jesus says, if you're supposed to be the religious leader, if you're supposed to be the, the teachers, if you're supposed to be the smart people around here, right? And you don't even recognize the authority of the prophet of God, then surely you're not going to recognize the authority of God's son. He says, so I'm not playing this game with you. Because what you've done with him, you've, you've kind of ostracized him, you've rejected him, you're doing the same thing with me. And to kind of understand this conflict, how this lands on us, why, why were the religious leaders so bent on rejecting Jesus? Why are they so intent on questioning his authority? Because they had always perceived Jesus as someone who's going to take from them. He's going to take my position as a teacher. He's going to take my power. He's going to take my authority. He's going to take my popularity. He's going to take my seat at the table. Jesus is going to come upset some things that I've established. He's going to make me irrelevant in some ways. And so I'm going to not recognize Jesus as who he is. I'm not going to recognize all the evidence that Jesus is the promised king. I've got to reject that. I've got to ignore that. I've got to discredit all of that. Why? Because I've got to hold on to my power. I've got to hold on to my position in this temple. And church, this has got to serve as a warning to us. A warning to us. Because we can look at Jesus and see him and perceive him. And understand he's a king we can start to have these same feelings that this is a king who wants to take something from my life instead of give something to my life. But Jesus is a good king. Jesus is a trustworthy king. Jesus is a loving king. And he says, if you follow me, if you submit to me, I'm going to lead you into abundant life. I'm going to lead a life that's good, that's full, that's not limited joy, but a greater joy, not limited peace, but greater peace. This is the king we follow. That he's come to forgive sinners. He's coming to release us from playing silly religious games. He's coming to give us full life. But so often we look at Jesus and say, no, 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 I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to hold on to this thing. I, I got to reject you because I got to have whatever this thing is. Because that thing becomes my functional God. That area, my, my, my you know, my money, my sexuality, whatever it might be. That becomes what I hold to. That becomes what I cling to. Sometimes people hide behind all these intellectual questions about the Bible, like, oh, I got so many questions about where it comes from and how it works, and some of us have honest questions, but a lot of us, if we're honest, actually honest, at the end of the day, when we get down to the, the bottom level of it, we're somebody's who are not willing to surrender control, and if we really believe what the Bible says, we'd have to acknowledge that Jesus is calling the shots from here on out, that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the King. And some of us, we don't want that because that means there's some things in my life that are going to have to change. The good news is that we serve a God who didn't just die for us, but can change us. That can transform us and give us a better way to live. So are we questioning Jesus' authority? Secondly, are you rejecting Jesus' authority in your life? Maybe you've gone beyond questioning it and you're all out rejecting it, right? Pushing back against Jesus' authority. So you would think that a good question like this from Jesus would de-escalate the situation. He said, you know what, I think I've planted a little seed of conviction. I'm going to pull off and let that, let that just marinate in their hearts a little bit. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Okay, he says, I'm going to tell you a parable and demonstrate what you're doing. I'm going to demonstrate where you can find yourself in this story. 
It's not a really encouraging parable, okay? If I'm honest, this is a parable of judgment. It's a parable Jesus is going to foretell of wrath on these religious leaders, and it's going to get dark for them real quick. Okay, verse number nine. Then Jesus began to speak to the people this parable. And the story, he says, is a certain man planted a vineyard and led it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. And at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandmen, or the servants, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another servant. They beat him too and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. So again, he sent a third servant. They wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I know I'll send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. When the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance would be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What, therefore, Jesus says, shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these servants and shall give the vineyard to others. This is a harsh warning here for the religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus. Well, let's, let's get our cast of characters down in the parable really quick. The owner okay, of this land is God the Father in the story. Right? God the Father has created all things. He's the owner of everything. He's the owner of this vineyard. This vineyard in this illustration, this parable, is God's people. It's the nation of Israel. In Psalm chapter 80, verse 5, we see God plants this vineyard. He establishes this vineyard. He cultivates this vineyard. He protects this vineyard of Israel. God is the one who's done everything for this vineyard. And he has established and handed off the the leadership of this vineyard to some servants. In this case, the husbandmen, the tenants of this vineyard. These are the people who own the vineyard but are supposed to manage it, cultivate it for the good of the vineyard, right? That's the job of a servant. These are the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to. They're supposed to be pruning it and helping it and making it healthy and and helping Israel to produce good fruit and and, and discipling it, coming along in in, in the path that that the owner would want it to. But these tenants start thinking that they're the actual owners. They start thinking they're the ones in control. They're not serving the vineyard, they're serving themselves. They're misusing their power. And then there's this moment in the story, right, when the day comes, he says, I'm going to send a messenger, I want to check into my vineyard, I want to see that they, you know, we can get a little bit of the fruit, come out, and they beat up the guy. He says, okay, I'll send another guy. They beat up that guy, and they send another guy, he beats up that guy. He says, what should I do? All of my messengers have been beaten, ignored, mocked, mistreated. These messengers, by the way, are illustrative of the prophets of God in the Old Testament, who God has repeatedly sent to his people, to call them to repent, to call them to faithfulness back to him. The last prophet would have been John the Baptist. They chopped his head off, okay? He said, you know what, what what should I do? All of my servants, all of my my messengers have been beaten down. The vineyard, the owner of the vineyard says, I know, I'll send my son. I love that word he describes him as his beloved son. This is Jesus. The language here, beloved son, goes all the way back to how the father speaks about Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son. How he speaks of his transfiguration. This is my beloved son. And so the beloved son starts walking towards the vineyard. And these evil tenants don't see the mercy of the owner and sending the heir to the vineyard to come and to, to steward it. But they reject him. And it ends with this question that Jesus asks to the religious leaders. What do you think is going to happen? You've rejected the beloved son. They killed him. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think the father, the owner, is going to be pleased 
with this? Or do you think he's going to come in wrath and judgment and fury on those who rejected the son? Can you imagine the awkwardness of the moment? Can you imagine being filled with so much pride that you're in the temple. You're supposed to be a servant of the Lord, right? You're supposed to be serving these people. You got the big robe. You got the big spiritual resume. You're important. You know all the Bible verses. You're the person that's got really impressive flowery prayers when you pray. Everybody knows you based on what you do. You've played all the kind of the religious games, but ultimately you've rejected the son. And Jesus says the wrath of God is coming on you. Gets weird, gets heavy, gets awkward quick. You know what I love? Jesus doesn't dumb this down. He doesn't make it soft. He doesn't just try and make it digestible. This is a stern warning that he's giving these Pharisees. And it should be a warning for us as well. If there's anybody in our world that's at risk of being a religious leader who's interested in doing religious things without Jesus, it would be people who are gathered in a religious service this morning, right? We're the ones who are in danger of this. Because a lot of us, we had a long list of things that we do that are good. A long resume of, of how we've gotten better over time. Promises that we've made. Things that we've done for the Lord. Stuff we've given away. Service opportunities we fulfilled. Missions trips that we've gone on. But ultimately, none of that really matters for the eternal value of our soul. The only thing that matters in 10,000 years is what you did with the beloved son. What did you do when the owner of the vineyard sent the son to you? Jesus says, you can play all the religious games you want to play. But if you reject the son, God's wrath and fury is coming. The question for us this morning is, have we received the son? Have we repented of our sins in our hearts? Do we know that we have a desperate need for a savior? desperate need for forgiveness or have you just been busy trying to get better and improve yourself be a better dad be a better wife be a better husband that's what this is about you know we really try to overcomplicate christianity sometimes and we make it all about that we do and we don't do what we're allowed to do what we're not allowed to do what's in the line what's the gray areas it truly comes back to what do we do with the beloved son what do we do with jesus if you've received him praise god Praise God. But this is more than a warning, though. I think there's some real beauty in that. That's what I noticed this week. I was moved this week by the faithful pursuit of God. I hope you noticed it. You guys know the story of the Old Testament, how rebellious God's people were. We kind of laugh at the Old Testament. Israel kind of laugh at the disciples and the Pharisees. Like, you guys are so dumb, right? Just keep turning your back on God again and again and again and again. And what I love about the Old Testament is we see God continuing to pursue his people. We see here these Pharisees, and you see God continuing to pursue them. I'm going to send you another messenger and another messenger and another messenger. You're still not getting it. Okay, I'm going to send my own son. He's continuing to pursue lost people. He says, I'm going to pursue my people. I'm going to run after my people. I'm going to send a messenger. I'm going to try and get the attention of my people. I'm going to call them back to myself. I'm going to send my son. I'm not just going to sit up in heaven and judge them in wrath and fury. I'm not going to continue this distance that's been made between us and them. I'm going to move towards them. I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to seek them. I'm going to save them. So there's really good news here that there's a God who continues running after his vineyard, who continues to run after rebellious people. And so maybe you're here today and you have been rejecting God's authority in your life. And you've rejected the messenger after messenger after messenger. It seems like that God has sent you. And maybe you're here this morning, you're kind of doing the church thing, but you're running from him. And you're running from his authority in your life. The message of this parable is God is still coming for you. And he came all the way at the expense of his own son. 
He wants us to wake up. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to repent. He wants us to know that he loves us. The pursuit of God, he's not pursuing us to beat us up. He's pursuing us to love us and to pursue us and to call us to repentance and belief so I can have joy, so I can have peace, so I can have satisfaction. That's what he does, guys, and praise God for it. But we have a God who sends multiple messengers, who's patient and steadfast and pursuing and continues to run after rebellious and unfaithful people. In this story, the tenants don't repent when they see the sun. They don't repent when, oh, this is serious now. The, the air is coming. They don't repent. They persist in their unbelief. Let's, let's look at how it plays out. Verse 16. When they heard it, the Pharisees, they said, God forbid. And he beheld them. In other words, he looked them in the eye. You ever had someone give you really awkward eye contact when it gets confrontational, right? He beheld them, looked them in the eye, and said, what is this then that is written? The stone which with the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Okay, so the religious leaders, they can read between the lines. They understand this parable, this story he's telling. They know the cast of characters. They know this is about them. And they know that Jesus just pronounced God's wrath upon them, God's judgment upon them, that they're the evil tenants, right, that are doing something wrong. And they're saying, no, 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 Jesus. You're the one that's getting in trouble, not us, right? Don't flip the script on us, right? This is about you. He says, okay, if that's true, let's do a Bible study. You Bible nerds, right? Let's do a Bible study, he says to the Pharisees. Psalm 118, what's it about? What he's talking about, Psalm 118, is the cornerstone. The cornerstone, maybe you heard that phrase. The cornerstone that has been rejected becomes the chief cornerstone of the church. Now, what is this cornerstone? You guys aren't super builders, okay? Obviously, you guys know my personality. I've built many of many a thing, right? Primarily uh, Legos is about the extent of my building knowledge. But the cornerstone, if you're not familiar with it, in this time period is basically a large stone that became ultimately important in the structure of a home, right? It had to be strong. It had to be straight because it had to support the whole foundation. Anything that was built on top of this stone had to be strong enough to hold it. It had to be straight because it kept everything else around it in alignment, right? That the cornerstone was what you built on. And what Jesus is saying, you're the builders, and you're looking at the stone. You're looking right now at the stone, and you see me, and you're saying, I'm not a worthy cornerstone. Why is that? Ultimately, it's because he's been hanging out with sinners, because he's not playing their weird religious games. So he says, I'm calling you out. Is it because I'm from some blue-collar town, Nazareth? You don't think any good can come from Nazareth? You're rejecting this cornerstone? You're not going to accept that I'm the foundation for all this? You want to reject it? But he says, what you don't understand is by rejecting this chief cornerstone, you're stumbling over it and you're incurring the wrath of God in yourselves because you are rejecting the one that was promised to you. This cornerstone for us, church, is Jesus. That's the cornerstone of the church and not new hope, the church. For all of us who are in Christ, Jesus is the one we stand on. My identity as a child of God is standing on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. That is what's holding me. That is what's sustaining me. The son who is literally cast off so that I can be brought in, that's the cornerstone. That's where my identity is rooted. Our, our belief that we live after we die, that is based on the cornerstone. Our proclamation of life after death, that is based on Jesus who conquered death after his resurrection. Everything in our church is built on Jesus' life, 
death, and resurrection. It's all about him. He's the one that's strong enough to sustain it. He's the one who's straight enough to make sure everything's in alignment. Jesus is the foundation. And so he's looking at these Pharisees, and he's like, you are rejecting the foundational truth of all of this. You're rejecting the cornerstone. And maybe you're here this morning, and you say, you know what? I've built my life on something significantly less sturdy. This morning, Jesus is the cornerstone, and for those of us in the room that can testify this morning, not because of our goodness, but because the foundation we've chosen to build on, that Jesus is the cornerstone of our lives, he's the cornerstone of our identities, he's the cornerstone of our faith, he's the cornerstone of our hope, he's the cornerstone of our security and our assurance, and we can praise God in those moments, because I have something stronger that can withstand the storms of this life. We, we can't build our lives on popularity. We can't build our lives on culture because culture changes every 10 minutes. We can't build our lives on people's opinions. We can't build our lives on the arguments of the day. We can't build our lives on what people think about us, what our neighbors think about us, what our friends think about us. We have to build our lives upon the cornerstone and what that cornerstone accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And maybe you're in the room and you're on that rock with me. We can praise God for it, right? For the foundation that we have in Jesus Christ. He's strong enough. He's straight enough. He's right enough. He's pure enough. He's sufficient enough. If you're not on that stone this morning, the invitation is to come and find that security and build your life on the sure foundation of Jesus. It is a better foundation than anything else you can build on. Number three, number three, and I'll be done. Are you surrendered to Jesus' authority in your life? Are you surrendered to Jesus' authority? Here's what I want to say, okay? So unfortunately, Jesus' parable, which you think would soften their hearts, which you think would bring some reality and truth to their hearts, you would hope it would de-escalate the situation before it gets into Yagulir, but it does not. The religious leaders don't have the power to kill and execute Jesus in their culture, and so the only ones in their community that really could do that would be the Roman authorities. So they say, you know what, let's shift. If we can't catch Jesus to be in trouble with us, let's get him in trouble with Rome, right? Let's get him in trouble with the Romans. And so they, they can't win this argument, so let's get him guilty of treason. That's what happens in verse number 21. So they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teacheth the way of God truly. Okay, that is what we call sucking up, okay? That is flattery. That is not reality of how they feel, okay? You know what? We've changed our mind, Jesus. You're the best. You're the best. Verse 22. Let me ask you, Jesus, is it lawful? to give taxes to Caesar or no? But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, why tempt ye me? Show me a penny whose image and superscription is on it. And they said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, give unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things which are God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people. They marveled at his answer and held their peace. All right, another masterful display of, of winsome arguing by Jesus. This is a weird, tragic scene, man. The religious leaders, they're not, they're not sensing any conviction. They're just getting madder and madder and madder, more and more angry. Now they're sending spies to spy on Jesus, setting this trap for him. Hey, you know what? We pay taxes every year, Jesus. Do we have to continue to pay taxes? That's a pretty divisive topic, okay? Most of you guys ask that every year, right? Do I have to keep doing this? Yes, you do, okay? Um, can I, can I just double tithe to, to the Lord and then forget the taxes? Romans 13 says we pay our taxes, okay? Uh, we give to Caesar, those that are Caesar's. 
God, the governments of our world have been established in a way that they're supposed to be pursuing God-honoring justice and honor and peace. So yes, we give and pay our taxes. Otherwise, you'll be in jail, okay? So they do have authority. So Jesus says, look at that coin that you're asking me. Do I have to give this to Caesar? And show me whose picture's on it. They say it's Caesar's. Well, Caesar's running the government right now. God has, has put, literally put him in a place of position and power. He's raised him up, given him some limited authority over this region. So we ought to pay what we're due. We as Christians ought to pay our taxes, okay? Um, but there's obviously a, another lesson here beyond just paying our taxes. The authority of this earthly kingdom, yes, we give what it's due. But the authority of Jesus' kingdom, we also give what is due to it. It says, you not only give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, you give to God what is God's? Well, what is God? He's looking around at like our pocketbook. He's like, okay, do I have any pictures of God or any dollar bills that I have to give back to the Lord? Like, what, what do I have to give? Is it financial? Like, stick with this image idea, right? What's on the image of the coin? That's what he says. The, the, the inscription, right, is a picture of Caesar. Let me ask this question. If the image on the coin is Caesar's, where is God's image in our world? on you then he has the imago day we believe we are in the image of god so if i give unto caesar that which is caesar's i give unto god that which belongs to god what is that i give him me myself this isn't about financial stewardship and tithing to a church or giving money with this is about my complete and total surrender to jesus as my king i give him me he's saying i'm not lowering the standard for you here what's demanded of us as followers of Jesus is all of us. We were made by God. This world was made by God. The breath in our lungs is God-given. The whole universe around us is God. The stars in the sky were hung by God. Now I give him my heart and my soul and my mind and my future and my life. I give to God that which is God's. This isn't Jesus. You can have my hour and a half on Sunday morning. This isn't Jesus. You can take a little bit of my money. This isn't Jesus. I'll go to my table group sometimes. This isn't Jesus, I'll write a check and put it in a box. This isn't about that. This is us saying, Jesus, you can have everything. You have access to everything that I am. You have access to everything that I possess, everything that I believe. You don't just get my old sins I don't want anymore. You have access to my future. You have access to the decisions that I make. Jesus, I'm giving you everything. My mouth is for your glory. My mind, I want to think about things that, that give you glory. I want the work of my hands to be glorifying to you. I want the, my marriage to testify of your glory. I want the way I orient my life around you to testify of your goodness and glory in my life. Now, there's not one area of my life where I say, God, you don't have access to this. We ought to give to God that which is God's. That's the invitation ultimately to be a Christian. To see Jesus as your Savior, yes, but to follow him as your king. This isn't just, I want to get out of hell someday, okay? This is, I want to follow Jesus. I give him everything. I just wonder if you've ever actually just kind of signed over the rights of your life to the Lord. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5? It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. I'm a follower of Jesus. Literally, the Bible says, I no longer live for myself. I live for him. I'm alive in Christ. The old me is gone. It's not about my glory anymore. It's not about my comfort anymore. It's not about my ease. It's about his glory. It's about his goodness, it's about his kingdom, it's about his fame. He's a worthy king for us to follow. This is one of the reasons I really do love being a part of 
of this church, and I've loved the past few weeks studying about the kingdom of God. There are so many of you guys that live this out in reality. You live sacrificially. You live in a way that is illogical to friends and family members, the way you give of yourself to serve others, to bless others. You wake up early. I always think of the week of Vacation Bible School we came through this past summer, and uh, a week full of all of the volunteers of our church just acting like total fools for children, right? We wear the same blue t-shirt every night that gets washed maybe a couple times during the week, right? We start smelling bad by the end of the week, right? It's just a devotion that we give to these kids, right? What is that? That's, I'm going to live for you, Jesus. I wanna, I wanna, my life is it's in your hands. And those that wake up early and come in here and serve and bless, and those that are in the other rooms right now, blessing and taking care of and teaching God's word to kids. What is that? that that's a, Jesus, I'm going to give to you what is, what is yours. I'm going to give back that which you've given to me. God will call us to do things that require us to sweat and to work and to serve. I, you know what I love? I love sleeping in. I can't do it anymore. I'm getting to an age, unfortunately, where like it just doesn't work anymore. Like I, I try to, and yet I'm up at the same time. I'll even tell Sarah, like, tomorrow I'm sleeping in, and I, it just doesn't happen. Right? I don't want to. Um, don't like mornings. It's not that I'm super spiritual and I want to get up early. It's just kind of the reality of my life. I wish I did teen ministry still because teen ministry never starts until 1 p.m. Um, that's when the majority of teen ministry happens. But you, know, you wake up, you get in your word, you, you study. You, what is it? It's, Jesus, you're worthy of this in my life. I'm going to get up and I'm going to pray. I'm going to read. I'm going to study. Jesus gets weird here, okay? He gets direct here. He gets pointed here. And he says, if you're going to follow me, it's going to take everything you have. Because Jesus is their king. Jesus is more than just our savior, our forgiver. He's our leader. He's the one we follow. He's the one who says what we're going to do, where we go, and we yield to his word. So it's not about what I think. It's really not. It's not about the word of any one human. Okay, this is about the king's word. This is the king's way, the king's path, the king's mission. It's about his glory and our job and our responsibility is to fulfill that. Jesus, where'd you get this authority? Well, ultimately, it's an authority that comes from the Lord. It's an authority that is given out of a mercy of mission. You rejected this messenger, this messenger, this messenger. Now I'm here to be able to give you one last opportunity to find forgiveness, repentance, or relationship with him. But that authority this morning, Christian, it is not just, and I, I want to serve Jesus and its platitudes and softness and, and intentionality and, and good feelings. It is, it is the reality of life that, Jesus, everything that I have is yours. What I own is yours. The hopes of my heart, the dreams of my future, it's yours. You're my king. And my hope is as we surrender those things over to the Lord, we'll watch that he blesses and multiplies and the goodness of our king comes to fruition in our lives. Would you bow with me for a prayer? I'll be dismissed in just a moment.